Turn your Bibles to the uh, book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 18. Last week, we looked at uh, the other part of this chapter, talked about this family that left the house of bread, left Bethlehem to go to Moab to find food, and we saw Naomi, the wife of this family, lost her husband, lost two sons, and she was very empty there in Moab, left with nothing. God called her back, and uh, we looked last week at how Naomi was a picture of repentance as she comes back toward Judah and toward the God who has called her. This morning, our focus is going to be more on Ruth and um, Naomi's discussion with her two daughters-in-law because a decision has to be made. So we're going to pick up chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, pick up in verse 6 and then read over to verse 18. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she, Naomi, said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw 
that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Let's pray. Father, your word is a living word, not a dead word. And so we know and have confidence that you will speak to us today through the power of your spirit. Give the preacher strength. Give the voice strength that your word might be preached. All to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. A young man was on his phone with his girlfriend, and he was trying to impress upon her his commitment to her. I would climb the highest mountain for you. I would cross the deepest valley for you. I would swim the widest river for you. In his enthusiasm, maybe he breaks out into that chorus, you know, ain't no mountain high enough. (laughs) Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from you. Nothing can keep us apart. At the end of that phone conversation, he says to her, I'll pick you up tonight at seven if it doesn't rain. It's easy to speak words of commitment. Sometimes those words are shallow. Sometimes following through on what you've committed yourself to is difficult. It does raise the question, who or what are you really committed to? What drives you in life? What are you really passionate about? People can be passionate about a lot of things that ultimately may not do them any harm. I won't mention any specific sports teams, but some are are disappointed every year. The hopes, the dreams, every year dashed. As long as that commitment doesn't take over your life, it's rather harmless. But maybe you run into people who are so passionate about their sports teams that it's hard to even talk to them. But then people can be passionate about a lot of things that are harmful. Some of you may remember the Jim Jones tragedy. Jones and the members of his inner circle planned and orchestrated a mass murder-suicide in a remote jungle commune at Jonestown, Guyana. People were so committed to this man that they followed his orders, drinking the Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. 909 people died, 304 children. It makes a difference what you're committed to. Last week, we looked at Naomi as a picture of repentance. Her family moved to Moab to find food so it's not a good move. They, they left the promised land, the land that God had given to them. They left the house of bread, Bethlehem, to find food in Moab. And during their 10-year stay in Moab, 10 years, 
maybe they didn't mean to be there that long, but 10 years, Naomi's husband died. Her two sons married Moabite women, and then they died. Naomi herself turned back to God and began to make her way home, back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. Today, we look at the conversation she has with her two daughters-in-law. They have to make a decision. Who or what are they really committed to? Do they go with Naomi to Judah? Or do they go back, back to Moab, back to their land, back to their family, back to their gods? I think we see this morning in Ruth a picture of conversion. Now, we're using conversion in a very broad sense. It includes a momentous, life-changing commitment, what we would call regeneration, leading to faith, leading to a very changed life. But conversion also includes the evidence in life of the commitment that is made. And this is what we see in Ruth here in chapter 1. It's this decision Ruth demonstrates. In, sorry, in this decision, Ruth demonstrates what is the most important thing in her life. So what are the components that make up such a life-changing decision? You might be surprised. One thing that's clear in this passage is that this decision that must be made comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. The picture you get of these three women is that they are very close. Naomi is on the road back to Judah and Orpah and Ruth are walking with her along the way. Maybe the plan is to walk a mile or so and and then separate, say goodbye. But they're having a hard time saying goodbye. They don't seem to be in a hurry to leave Naomi. Several times she has to tell them, go back. Go back to Moab. Go back to Moab. Don't come with me. In verse 10, they even say, no, no, we are going with you, Naomi. What a beautiful relationship must have developed between this older Jewish woman and these two younger Moabite women. They're family. In-laws. Sometimes in-laws don't get along very well, but it seems like these three women got along very well. They forged a warm friendship, overcoming those cultural barriers. They've been thrown into the crucible of dealing with grief together in the death of Naomi's husband and then her two sons who are the husbands of these two Moabite women. They have a human family bond hammered out on the anvil of pain and sorrow. And they don't want to lose Naomi. They don't want to leave her. The first time Naomi tells them to go back, she pronounces a blessing on them. That's verses 8 and 9. May may the Lord repay you for being so kind to me. And may he grant to you rest. The idea of rest here refers to security. Specifically, security for them in marriage. It's very difficult to be a widow in that culture. 
Perhaps you notice that Naomi mentions several houses here in this chapter. Verse 8, she first says, return each of you to her mother's house. Normally the phrase used here would be father's house. A place of safety, a place of protection. Mother's house is only used four times in the Old Testament. But when it's used, it emphasizes comfort, joy, and it has to do with love and marriage. She then offers a blessing from the Lord that he would deal kindly with them because they have dealt kindly with her in the sorrow of death. She asks that God would grant them rest, each in the house of her husband. Again, rest refers to safety, security, protection, no longer feeling vulnerable, being a widow, being without a solid future. She's gently making the argument. You need to go back to Moab. You need to go back to Moab. And then when they say in verse 10, no, 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 we will return with you to your people, then, then Naomi holds nothing back and forcefully makes the case that they need to return. That's verses 11 through 13. Look at what she says. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. Return. She makes the case here. They must return because it will be impossible, impossible for them to find husbands in Judah. What Jewish young man is going to marry a Moabite widow? You're young, you have the opportunity for marriage. Go back. Seems like the only possibility here, as Naomi makes the case, is for her to raise up sons for them to marry. But she's too old for that. Painting the impossible picture. With verse 13, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The events that have brought them to this place are from the hand of the Lord. Naomi recognizes that. We saw that last week. But it's exceedingly bitter to Naomi that she will lose the friendship and the companionship of her two daughters-in-law because they must go back to Moab. There's no other option in Naomi's eyes. Many people have trouble with Naomi's advice here. They have trouble with her strong exhortation for these two women to go back to Moab. She's sending them back to a pagan country that worships false gods. Why would she do that? 
Isn't she concerned about their spiritual well-being? Doesn't she want them to worship the God of Israel? I think Naomi knows Orpah and Ruth pretty well. And I think she's pushing them that they had better count the cost before they make this journey back with her to Judah. Count the cost. It's a cost that Naomi has already considered herself. She's a widow. She's lost everything, Naomi. She'll have to fend for herself and providing for her own needs in Judah. Although the Old Testament stresses caring for widows, she's, she's in a very vulnerable situation with, with no means of visible support. It's been over 10 years since she left Judah. Who knows how they will treat her? Who knows how they will receive her? 10 years she's been gone. Naomi could have pressured Orpah and pressured Ruth. You got to come back with me. She could have made it difficult for Ruth and Orpah to go back to Moab. She could have poured on the guilt. She could have played the pity party with them. She could have manipulated things to make the case that she really needed them to go back to Moab. I need some companionship. I need someone to talk to. I need someone to walk with. I need someone to take away the loneliness. Why can't you come back with me to Judah? I mean, they were willing. Youthful energy. Young hands, young legs, which becomes very important in chapter 2 where somebody's got to go get some food. Then I wouldn't feel so vulnerable. I wouldn't feel so alone. I, I, I. She doesn't do that. She's putting their interests in finding a future, finding husbands above her own interest of loneliness. And she wants them to understand the reality of what would await them in Judah. She's giving them the opportunity to make a choice. She wants them to count the cost. Jesus does a similar thing in his ministry while he's on earth. I'm not going to spend very long, but if you have, you can turn over to, to Luke chapter 11 just for a minute. It's interesting, in this part of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11, when a crowd is gathering, the crowds are coming. What does Jesus say? Well, Luke eleven twenty nine 29 is the first place we want to look at. Luke eleven twenty nine 29 says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. This generation is an evil generation. In Luke 11, he also speaks with the Pharisees and he says several times to them, woe 
to you Pharisees. You see it in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. Verse 43. Verse 44. Woe to you. Why is he pronouncing this judgment? Well, verse 42 says, You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. He's naming things that they are doing wrong because they are keeping people from coming to know the Lord, to know God. 11.45, one of the lawyers says this to Jesus after hearing this. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Jesus was insulting the Pharisees, and you insult us also. So what does he say? Verse 46, Woe to you lawyers. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. And then in Luke 14, 25, just one more passage. It says, great crowds, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 28, he says, you must be willing to count the cost. Count the cost. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The disciples must have been shaking their heads. Come on, Jesus. Every time we get a big crowd, every time there's momentum, you say something. Why does he do this? It's a sifting process because he's looking for disciples. He's looking for committed followers who will understand the cost to follow him. That's what Jesus is looking for. Ruth clearly shows that she understands the cost of the decision that she's making. The cost of following Naomi back, the cost of coming to the God of Israel. In verse 10, both Orpah and Ruth declare, we will return with you to your people. In verse 14, both Orpah and Ruth are are weeping together. Orpah kissed Naomi and then returned to Moab. But Ruth clung to Naomi. She would not let her go. And then look at what Naomi says to Ruth in verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return. After your sister-in-law. You see, here the issue is clearly stated. Ruth, are you really willing to associate yourself with my people? More importantly, are you really willing to associate yourself with the God that I worship? Return to your people. Return to your gods. This is not a move from South Carolina to Nebraska. It's not a move from one city in Moab to another city in Moab. This is a commitment that will change every part of Ruth's life. This is the kind of commitment needed to follow the God of Israel. You cannot be half in. You cannot think that you'll half-heartedly make this move. It's all or nothing. 
Ruth, it's all or nothing. It's the kind of commitment that Jesus is looking for, for those who will follow him. You cannot just be along for the ride. That might work for a little while, but eventually you're going to be confronted with a decision. And that decision will be an all or nothing choice. Who are you really committed to? Who do you really worship? Ruth comes to that point of decision and she fully commits herself to the God of Israel and she demonstrates that commitment by fully fully committing herself to Naomi. Conversion is a full commitment. Notice she's firm in her commitment. Verse 16, don't urge me. Don't urge me to return from following you. Stop. Stop telling me to go back. I'm in. I've made my decision. She shows the evidence of this in what she says to Naomi. These beautiful words. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. She even takes an oath in the name of the God of Israel. Because that's the God that she is now committed to. I'm never going to leave you. I'll be with you wherever you go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. I am with you until the day that you die. Total commitment expressed in these words. Because the God of Israel is the creator of this universe and the king of all the earth, your commitment to him must be a total commitment. He must be first in your life. Because Jesus Christ is the son of God who's died on the cross for our sins and his name is the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved, your commitment to him must be a total commitment. Christ must be first in your life. That's the question this morning. Is it your desire to live your life in such a way that Christ is the center of your life in everything that you do? Everything that you do. It's not just a commitment to Christ. We see this undercurrent in this chapter. It's a commitment to his people. Your people, your gods, my people, my God. You run into people sometimes that really like Christ but don't care much for the church. And sometimes that's understandable maybe. But what's clear in Ruth 1 is you can't have one without the other. You can't have the God of Israel without the people of Israel. You can't have Christ without the church, his people. And yes, his people may let you down sometimes. Yes, we as his people are still sinners. We're in the process of being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, but we are not perfect. We sin. And we need to be honest with ourselves that this kind of commitment is not always easy. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is not always easy. His message is to put yourself to death. 
every day. Put yourself to death. Take up the cross. Put aside your agenda. Put aside your goals and your dreams. Now, sometimes your goals and your dreams may fit in with what Christ wants. But put all that aside and put him first in your life. We must be ready because we will be faced with decisions where we will have to choose whether we will put Christ first or maybe whether we'll make another decision. If you go back to what Ruth says to Naomi, it's, it's really the language of the covenant. I'll go where you go. I'll lodge where you lodge. Your people, my people. This is why this passage sounds so much like marriage, doesn't it? Marriage is also a covenant. In fact, the word for cling here, Ruth clung to her, is the word used in Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. It's the same word. Cling to his wife. What Ruth says expresses what marriage is all about. We are in a covenant relationship with God whereby God says, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. At some point in your life, you're going to have to make a choice to choose Christ or to choose something or someone else. Even if you're a professing Christian, those choices are going to come. And sometimes it comes at the point of who you're going to marry. Are you willing to submit your choice of a marriage partner to Christ? Believe me, you want a marriage partner that is also totally committed to Christ. Marriage is difficult enough if you've got two committed believers. It gets really difficult if one is maybe not a believer or not very committed. Family decisions. They're always difficult. There have been a number of pastors in the last eight to ten years who've actually changed their view on same-sex relations because a son or daughter has come out as same-sex attracted. And I fully sympathize. These are hard, hard situations. Hard situations dealing with, with children. It's hard to accept but not affirm. Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield has a new book out. Uh, and at the end of that book, she's answering a lot of questions that mothers and grandmothers have asked her over the years, dealing with children. And, and she goes through a variety of scenarios. Accept them, yes, but not affirm. That's difficult. But we must hear what Jesus says in Luke 14, 25 about putting him first, right? He has to be number one. Even in our family situations. <clears throat> Recently, I interviewed someone to teach at RTS, not at the Charlotte campus. But I interviewed them to teach for us a course on Islam. We have a course on Islam. And this particular individual grew up in Saudi Arabia in a family very, very committed to Islam. He came to the States for further education and through a series of events, he became a Christian. It was actually the Sunday after 9-11. He was going to this church and 9-11 hit. Remember 9-11, right? Been a long time ago. But 9-11 hit and that sermon on the Sunday after 9-11 was what God used to convert him to Christ. 
His family, most of them were still back in Saudi Arabia. When he became a Christian, he was completely rejected by his family. And I don't know if I have this story exactly correct. His brother either wanted to kill him, threatened to kill him, or tried to kill him. He tried to save his marriage, but his, his wife left him. It's a shame culture. His family tried to shame him to coming back, and his response to them was, I can never go back on my Savior who's died for me. As followers of Christ, are, are we willing to put Christ in every decision that we make? The good news is that we worship a God who's totally committed to us. I mean, this is why we can be totally committed to Him, because He's totally committed to us. He'll let nothing stand in the way of our salvation, even willing to send His Son into this world to pay the price for our sin. Born in a manger, taking on Himself human flesh, coming into this dark world in which we live. Being willing to go to a cross. And as Matthew reflects on this, has a statement in there, and as the song picks up on it, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and to set him free. But he died alone. He died alone for you and for me. Nothing is going to stop him from his mission in Jerusalem to die on the cross. That's the kind of God that we worship. He's given everything, humanly speaking, for our salvation. Christ paid the price for salvation. Are you willing to count the cost to follow him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ because we see in it that he was fully in, fully committed to your will, the will of his Father in heaven, fully committed experience death on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you would work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit the desire to put you first in our life, in everything, in everything. Thank you for the sure hope that you have given to us, that blessed hope that one day Christ is coming. He's coming for us. He's coming for his people. And we at that day will be reunited, vindicated, and glorified. Keep us faithful, Lord, until that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.